You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Last week, uh, we kind of began the prelude. It was called David's Prelude, and today uh, is going to be a similar type message in that we are setting the scene for David to come onto the scene. We know it's about King David, a man after God's own heart. This is a series we're going to be doing this fall and probably into the winter, going through 1 and 2 Samuel, focusing on the life of David. You know me, I don't like to just jump into it. I've got to set it up, all right? So last week was David's prelude, meaning we looked at Hannah's prayer and the book of Ruth and the book of Judges, where we looked at the big ideas, and we tried to set up for uh, for us today the, the, the scene of how we get to the kingdom. Where did this all come from? We looked at Judges, and at the end of Judges, there it said, there is no king in Israel, and everybody did what was right in his own eyes, right? Do you remember that? The Marley was dead to begin with as a doornail, right? It's this beginning of deep darkness, of a lack of faithfulness to God. Today, uh, as we look last week at Hannah's prayer and how God sent Hannah Samuel, we get to see Samuel's high point, really Samuel's... um, faithful ministry, and we get to see how God used him in pivotal moments here. And so we're going to be looking at a good chunk of First Samuel today. And it's a unique message in the sense that I'm going to be, I guess I was telling someone earlier how to describe today's sermon. I'm going to be telling a story today. The story is from the scripture, 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're going to be looking all the way to chapter 7. Not reading every single verse. Obviously, we don't have time. But we're going to be telling the story of God's um, active work in his people. And I want to present to you from the scripture today, I want you to be able to see God in a a light maybe that you didn't before. I want to present him to you today to the point where in some sense that you fear him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge. And yet also that you come in the end and recognize that we fear a holy God, that we also can have a deep-knit, close relationship with that God who loves you. It's that kind of dual aspect of understanding is quite extraordinary. And in this passage, it's going to jump off the page. In some ways, this Sunday, I don't even have to come up with application. And sometimes as a pastor, when you preach, you're like, well, how can I apply this to your life? In many ways, I'm going to be reading these passages, explaining this story as best I can. And the Holy Spirit's going to be applying this to your life because there are so many incredible narratives in this passage which form as mirrors or they reflect a little bit about our own station and position, our own faith and faithlessness, and it will reflect back upon you if you allow the scripture to do that today. Because sometimes it's like, well, what did I get out of today? I think what I hope that you're going to be able to grasp from this passage is today is is a keen awareness of the holiness and the power of God and his love for you that he has made a way for you to have a relationship with a very fearful and powerful God 
that he also loves you and you can know him because of what Jesus has done on the cross. That all comes out from this really ancient book, a really ancient text. A long, long time ago in a culture that seems so far distant from ourselves and yet people who are encountering situations and a mighty God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we're going to be looking at this passage and I guess through this whole series over the next couple of months. I know some of you have your Bibles on your phone or you bring a Bible. I would recommend that at times because there's going to be times when we're going to be covering larger passages and it's wonderful for you to be able to kind of look as we go and to be able to see and follow along and be able to grasp uh, what's going on because I'm not going to be able to read five, six chapters here worth of in- information, but I'm hoping to grasp the whole greater story. And today, I also want you, as I preach, you've probably picked up on many of these things that I tend to do, but as we read God's Word and as I preach it to you, you're gonna, I want you to be keenly aware and starting to pick up on different patterns that I'm going to be bringing out. When you read the Old Testament, uh, the, the writers are presenting the truth of God's Word to you in a way that it's written where character names, patterns, metaphors, contrasts, and comparisons and events are very important. Every detail is specifically put in there, and it tells a bigger story. And so growing up and maturing to read God's word in a way allows you to be able to just not grab the surface, but to be able to see why is the author sharing this detail? Why is this part of the historical narrative here when they could have shared so many other things? They chose it specifically to share this guy's name or at this instance or in this situation. So you're going to start doing that. And as we go through Samuel, that's going to come out all the time, but in particular today, because today we get to cover some of the most extraordinary stories in all of Samuel. There's a couple of passages that are almost humorous in such a way if they weren't so um, fearful in some ways, that there, there, there's some incredible stories here. And I hope to be able to do that and teach that in such a way. And so what we see here is in chapter 2, We looked at Hannah's prayer last week, Hannah's song, uh, the prelude to all of this, which is kind of a thesis statement for the entire book of 1 Samuel. And we we finished in verse 11. And if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, it begins in another very kind of dark spot. And I I promise there's some dark moments in this message, but at the end, it is a beautiful uh, act of repentance, redemption, and salvation by God. But it begins here in verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. There's a a great start to uh, your profile, uh, your, your, your profile on your social media. Hi, my name's Jordan. I am a worthless man, right? The Bible literally describes them as worthless men. It's extraordinarily aggressive and extraordinarily clear. And you are meant to see these sons, and many of you probably know them. Their names are Hophni and Phinehas. They did not, literally verse 12 says, they didn't even know the Lord, and yet they're serving as priests in the tabernacle of God, conducting the worship and the acts of sacrificing and repentance on behalf of the people of God. That is not the kind of leadership that you're looking to lead the nation into a God-honoring state. And what we see in chapter 12 is a descript, uh, chapter 2, 12 verses on, is a description of these worthless men, some of their actions, 
some of their grave um, actions of, of offending God, desecrating the temple. They were stealing some of the sacrifices that people would make. Uh, when you made a sacrifice, you would take the meat and it would be boiled in a pot at times and the meat that was left over that was boiled was given to the priests, the Levites. The fat was burned off because the fat was the choicest portions of the meat. That was burned off as an offering to God and the rest of the meat the priests could come and take for themselves and their own families. What Eli, uh, Eli and Hophni and Phinehas were doing is they were skipping that process and they were taking the choicest, best parts of the meat for themselves and ultimately robbing and stealing from the worship of God. And that's described here in this passage. They would take the fat first, take it of themselves. Sin, God says this sin was great in the sight of the Lord and he held them in contempt. It says in verse 22 of 1 Samuel 22, uh, 2, verse 22, it says, Eli was very old. You'll hear that many times. And he kept hearing all his sons were doing to all of Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. We have is not only are they stealing from God, but they're turning the very place, the tabernacle of God, they're turning it, you could say, into a brothel. They're turning it into a place where prostitution was happening, a place where grave acts of sin against God were done in the very entrance, the very place of the tent of meeting. The very place where God's holy presence would come and dwell upon the Ark of the Covenant was the same place that they were profaning, the location, the sacred space, and God's holy name. They were taking advantage of people, abusing people, stealing from God, This was the state of the priesthood, the state of the nation at that time. Scary, scary place. And what we find out is ultimately, as the age-old statement goes, your sin will find you out. God is the judge. Samuel, at the same time while all this is happening, is being uh, placed in contrast for us. If you were to look at verse 26... It says, now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and favor with the Lord and also with man. Is that a familiar phrase? It's also referenced in Luke chapter 2 to describe how Jesus grew up in favor and stature with God and man. Uh, The two verses are, are meant to be connected there. And yet here we see the boy Samuel is growing up while Hophni and Phinehas, his almost brothers, as he's living with them day in and day out in the tabernacle, Hophni and Phinehas are growing up further and further away from the God, profaning God's name. Samuel is growing up in favor with God and with others. You have this clear contrast that's happening. Hophni, Phinehas, and Eli on one side, and Samuel on the other. There's a clear distinction that's going to happen. God is making this clear. But then we see in chapter 3 another description of the state of the nation. We get it through the description of Eli and the priesthood at that time. I've actually preached on this passage before, but some of you might be familiar. Chapter 3, verse 1, this is the call of Samuel. It says, now the boy Samuel, chapter 3, verse 1, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. Samuel's being faithful. He's serving in the tabernacle as a kind of a young boyhood priest. And the word, get this, the word of the Lord was rare. In those days, that's one blanket statement of the nation at that point. There was no frequent vision. 
There was very few, very aspect, very few visions of God's word. The prophets were few and rare, and the word of the Lord was not commonplace. You could say the nation was more pagan than it was God-honoring. Verse 2, and at that time, Eli, now catch his descriptions of Eli, it's very important. Eli, the high priest at that time, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see. That is a, a purposeful description of the state, the spiritual state of the nation of Israel. They too were physically and spiritually blind, you could say. Physically blind Eli, reflecting the state of the spiritual na- of the nation, they are also spiritually blind. He could not see, and he was lying down in his own place. Verse 3, but, but the lamp of God had not yet gone out. Do you, you see this? There's darkness, spiritual blindness, sin, and wickedness, and yet there's this one figure, Samuel, and there's a beautiful picture that in the temple, the menorah there, the lamp, the golden lampstand, the light of that lampstand has not yet gone out. What is, the, what is he saying? Do not lose hope. It's dark and bleak right now. Don't give up. God is working behind the scenes, and he will vindicate his name. That's our sense here. So Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark was. So the priesthood is in disarray. Sin is everywhere. They're inept. Eli's leadership is feckless. He's not telling his sons to stop this wickedness. He's letting them do what they will. And Samuel is being faithful in the middle of it all. God's word was rare, but God continues to speak and do a great and mighty thing. In fact, if you were to move forward beyond this, God is calling Samuel. He says, call Samuel in the night, and Samuel's very attuned to God and his word, and he says, Hineni, Hineni, here I am, he says. Here I am, and he responds, and, and then God speaks to Samuel. In verse 11, and the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I am about to do a thing. In Israel, I, love, I just love the simplicity of it. Uh, Samuel, I'm about to do a thing. Okay? And when God says he's going to do a thing, it's going to be a big thing. All right? And he is about to move. The lamp has not gone out. The fire has not been quenched. He is about to do a very big thing. Is it going to be a difficult thing for some people? Yes. Sin is going to be judged. There is going to be difficulty. God's wrath is going to be poured out upon those who are standing against him. And yet, those who are faithful and turn to the Lord, they will be exalted and blessed. And that is what the storyline shows us through here. And so we have this word is rare, and yet God, though the word is rare, speaks to Samuel. And then if you trace down with me, like I said, it's wonderful to have your own Bible. You can follow along with me here. First Samuel 3, if you look at verse 19, Verse 19, 1 Samuel 3 says, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. So the word of the Lord was rare in Israel, but the word of the Lord is present with Samuel to the point where not even a single word that Samuel says is falling to the ground, but is being held up by God himself. What an extraordinary contrast. And Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And then it says, reiterates it in verse 21, and the Lord appeared again at Shiloh for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Then chapter four, verse one, reiterates the same point. The word, in chapter four, verse one, the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. You get this, God is speaking, God is not done. 
right? He is working, he is active, and he's working through his servant Samuel. He is not working through Hophni, Phinehas, and Eli, and you're about to see that worked out in a very clear way. He is working about those who humble themselves before God and follow his way, and he is against the proud and the arrogant and the wicked, and we'll see that, right? So this is that point here. There's a dramatic shifting of gears, you could say. It's as if God is shifting the mighty engine of the world and he has shifted the gear and he is ready to speed this thing up, right? He's no longer going in slow. He is ready to fire it up. And so that's what he does. In chapter four, you're gonna see one of, an, an extraordinary story. This one, chapter four and five, is, um, is pretty crazy here. So chapter four, what, what we get, the first point really is this hope between two thorns, Okay, rather than a rose, Samuel is this hope between the two thorns of Hophni and Phinehas. The state of the nation is rough, despairing. It's, it is against God. And yet, Samuel is that hope, that light that's, that's constant. Chapter 4, we come upon a situation where we have, as I've titled it, this presumptuous people. A presumptuous people. They're presuming upon God and his goodness. And they... They assume that they don't have to change anything in their lives. They don't have to do anything. And yet God will just come to their aid and beckoning will. So in chapter 4, we see that the people are encamping against the Philistines. There's the Philistines' might and power encamping at Aphek. And the, Philist- and the Israelites are camping at Ebenezer's. You have a standoff between two locations. Verse 2, the Philistines drew up against them in a line against Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated. You don't hear about that too often, but it's probably no surprise to us as we know the state of the nation currently is not honoring God, and yet they go to war and they lose. But for them, it came as a big surprise. They weren't ready for this. In fact, it says in verse 3, they lost 4,000 men in verse 3. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel... Now get this, who said this? The elders of Israel. The leaders of Israel at that time, also with the priesthood, said these horrific things. Verse three, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? I don't know. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here at Shiloh that it, do you see this? That it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. God's not doing what we want him to do. So maybe we can manipulate him and force him to do our will by bringing the Ark of the Covenant in the front of the line because he ain't going to let us lose when the Ark is here, right? Sounds like a great idea. Yeah? Some of you are like nodding just because I'm being very positive. No, no, no. Bad idea. Okay? Bad idea. Not good. In fact, here uh, Joyce Baldwin says that the ark or the chest here contained the very law of God. Did you know that? They had the Ten Commandments, that the law of God was in the ark. To which Israel was committed under a covenant initiated by the Lord himself. So to think that the very presence of the ark would, would with them reverse their fortunes without any change of heart in Israel's leaders was a measure of their insensitivity to spiritual thing. You could say also it was a measure of their blindness to the spiritual aspect of their worship of God. Also a measure of their brashness, their brazenness to do what they wanted to do without any consideration from what God wanted them to do. There's a lot of preaching points here, people. We don't have a lot of time. Do we do this today? I mean, 
you know, the, you're about to find out they bring the Ark of the Covenant and they lose, and the Ark of the Covenant is captured. I mean, how, how do we do this today? We do this so often today. Sometimes it's easy for us to treat religion or our good actions or our merit as the thing we put in front of our lives. Look what it's in front of us, Lord. You can't touch me now because I've done everything you said I'm supposed to do, right? We treat God like a genie in a bottle. We can rub the lamp and he'll come out and give us whatever we ask him. Or God's like, somebody was saying, I was talking about this passage, he's like the rabbit foot to our lives, you know? Where you can bring the good luck charm along with us as long as we've got the ark with us, nobody can touch us. And so often it's like that with religion, with our faith. We've got to experience this event. We've got to go and do this. We've got to come and measure up and heap up all of our stuff in front because once we do that, then God will do what I want him to do. You see, God is, is not a cosmic vending machine. He's, he's not this good luck charm that we can manipulate to get what we want, right? It, it, God is, is, is so much bigger than that and so much greater than that. It's offensive for us to treat God like a waiter. We're sitting at the table. Where's God? God, hurry up. I need my stuff. I need my thing. I need this. I need that. Let's go, fill my water up. Here we go. I'm a little hungry, Lord, right now. I've been waiting. And you're like, that's silly, Jordan. That's ridiculous. We don't, I fear that at times, even myself, that that is often how we might not say it out loud, but how we look at God. That he is there to do what we want him to do. When, and when we see in Samuel, it is, not, it is that very heart that God opposes. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And in this passage, we're going to see at the end where they humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, and they are exalted and saved. But it is us who bring the Ark of the Covenant in front of us and act like God is there to do our bidding. I'm going to set up my kingdom in my way, in my timing, because I said so, and God's going to do what I say, because don't you know who I am talking to him? Unfortunately, that aspect of of treating the Lord like that will lead us into great disaster. Notice what he says in verse five. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all of Israel gave a mighty shout. All of Israel's like, yeah, the ark's here. They shout, why? Because in the past, they shouted and literal walls fell down. The ark of the covenant, the people, the priests, they walked around Jericho and the walls of Jericho fell down. Hey, if we do that again, Philistines are gonna be quaking in their boots, man. We got this, we got this. And so the earth resounded, it says. The Philistines were actually legitimately scared. The noise was great for them. They were afraid. They said this great God who destroyed the Egyptians is gonna come and destroy us. But then what happens? In verse 10, the Philistines fought, Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very, this is sad, a very great slaughter for about 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell that day. And here is an ominous statement. The ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That is about as low at the point of Israel's history. And even if you talk to Hebrew scholars today, that is about as low a point in Israel's history as you can get. Their enemy has just captured the very Ark of the Covenant. 
And then we see what happens after that. Well, the glory leaves the building. That's the next title for this next point. The glory is gonna leave the building. If you look at verse 12 and on of chapter four, Eli is waiting to hear the news. He's sitting at the gate. He cannot go into battle. We we find out again, he's blind. And, And he's sitting waiting to hear what happens, not about his sons, for in Eli's credit, he is anxiously waiting and sitting there because he's worried about what's gonna happen to the Ark of the Covenant. He knows this isn't good. The Bible actually says he's sitting on the road watching even though he's blind and his heart is trembling for the Ark of God. So we do have to give Eli some credit here. There is a mixture. I think Eli's this mixture, this, this challenging aspect between good and evil, his sons being evil and Samuel being good. We have this, this aspect that's challenging in his heart. But then we see Eli heard the sound of an outcry. Then a a, a person from the battle comes running to tell Eli back from what has just happened at, at this battle. Eli, says verse 15, was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. Do you see this again being reiterated? He is blind. It's, it gives us again a description. And the man said to Eli, I have come to here to tell you today. I fled from the battle. He says, how did the, how did the battle go? How did, how, what, what happened? He said, Israel's fled before the Philistines. There's been a great defeat. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark has been captured. And as soon as he mentioned the ark of the covenant has been captured, you know what happened to Eli? Is a, this is an extraordinary event. It says, as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken. He died for the man was old and here's a key statement, and heavy and he judged Israel for 40 years. In some sick kind of way, maybe we think that's almost funny of what the description. But yet the, the, what's being communicated to us is purposeful. We are finding out that... Is, Eli is blind, he is old, he is, his leadership has been resulting in that, feckless and inept, and not only that, is he is enormously heavy. And you're like, well, that's kind of crazy. It is a depiction of what he has been doing in his life. He has been fattening himself on the choice sacrifices of God. He has been seeking his own worship and his own glory, and eventually, as he does so, that heaviness and that glory of himself crushes himself. He dies in sin in that way, we see. Though he has judged Israel for 40 years, it is that aspect that has destroyed him. And then it goes on further. His daughter-in-law is giving birth at this very moment. The wife of Phineas. she hears of this, and she gives birth to a son. And she names the son immediately, right before she dies in birth. She gives birth to his son, and the son's name is Ichabod. Ichabod. You're like, Ichabod? Ichabod Crane, right? Ichabod, this name means where is the glory? Where is the glory? The glory, it says here in verse 21, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because her father-in-law and her husband have passed away. And she said the glory has departed from Israel for the ark has been captured. The ark has been captured. The glory is gone. You could say, Elvis has left the building, okay? The glory of God has left the building. It's no longer here. What do we do now? Eli hears the the news. Um, His daughter-in-law hears the news, and and death is a result. The the key here I want us to take before we kind of move on is this idea of heaviness. The word glory in the Bible, which is repeated several times in chapter 5, 
is the word kabod. And that word is translated glory, or also in other places it's translated heaviness or weightiness. That there is a certain aspect of God's glory that is weighty, it is heavy. It is something that we cannot bear to keep on our own or we cannot seek to keep our own glory for it will crush our very neck when we seek ourselves like, it, like uh, Eli did. Glory, it says here, is a human or divine attribute indicating significance, importance, or the presence of God, meaning weightiness, importanceness, this idea, this, this to have glory. The glory of God's often associated with God's dwelling, his presence, where he is, there is his glory, the Shekinah glory. The glory of God is seen in a glory cloud on Mount Sinai. The glory of God descends on the tent of meeting. It's what causes uh, Moses' face to literally shine because he's in the presence of the glory of God. We, as his people, are to ascribe glory to God and worship him and to give him glory and him alone. It is the sheer weight and the magnetism. You can imagine almost like the sense of the sun, the burning sense of the sun, the power and the weight. I don't have numbers for you as to the weight and the girth, you could say, of the sun, but it is in that sun that, uh, that, that literally celestial bodies and planets rotate around the sun because the sheer weight and magnetism and size that is almost indescribable. That is the very sense of God and his presence, especially among his people, that there is this magnetism, there is this gravity of the situation that was so great that it causes worlds to change, lives to be altered. It is God's glory that's embodied in this idea. And when you seek your own glory apart from God, when you steal glory from God and keep it to yourself, you will become like Eli, heavy, blinded, and passing away in a way that, that we see here. Ichabod, where is the glory? The glory has gone. The glory is gone. And yet we know that God is a jealous God and he is unrivaled in his power and omnipotence. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. In the New Testament, we found out that the glory of God is fully expressed and seen in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory that we have seen is glory, the glory as the Son from the Father. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us. This is the glory among us. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed into one degree of glory to another. Glory is from cover to cover in the Scripture. And so it is in this glory that we see who can stand against the mighty glory of God. Who can stand up against the holiness of God? And what do we see in the coming chapters? We sang earlier, who commands the hosts of heaven? Who else could make every king bow down? Who else can whisper the darkness trembles only a holy God? What other beauty demands such praises? What other splendor outshines the sun? What other majesty rules with ju justice? Only a holy God. And then there's a phrase, what other glory consumes like fire? God's glory, his holiness is, it's, I have trouble describing it because it is that aspect of his goodness and his character and his nature that is so difficult to describe. It's weighty. It's heavy. And yet we know that though this is a bad situation, God is 
going to vindicate his name. He will bring salvation. He will not leave his people. And God can take care of himself. Look at verse 5. There's a comical description almost in some ways of what happens next. The Ark of the Covenant has been captured. It's in the house of Dagon, the temple of Dagon, the Philistine god, maybe known to be the father of Baal or Baal. Uh, And so these false gods of Ashtaroth and Baal and here Dagon, Dagon's also referenced in the story of Samson and other places. But what we see is the ark is taken and put right next to or right in front the, the idol statue of Dagon, the false god. And look what happens. Verse three, it's brought into the house of Dagon, the ark of the covenant. Verse three, and when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon was fallen face downward on the ground. Before the ark of the Lord. So they're like, what? Who knocked over the giant statue? So then they all go and they uh, put the Dagon back up. They, they put him back up in his place, right? And when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And this time the head of Dagon was cut off and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Is this a beautiful, amazing, powerful, comical story of the power and the weightiness of the glory of God seen there in the Ark of the Covenant against this little stone statue of Dagon and this God that they worship, this false idol, has nothing against him, nothing that can it do. And not only that, after that, what happens is it gets worse and worse for the people uh, in Ashkelon and Gath and Ekron and the cities of Philistia. Tumors and a disease starts breaking out. It says in the passage that tumors start breaking out in each city that the Ark of the Covenant goes to. So they start playing hot potato. Like, I don't want it, I don't want it, I don't want it. And so they start passing the Ark of the Covenant. Every time the Ark of the Covenant goes to another city in Philistia, tumors and disease start breaking out. Many commentators say it was probably something sort of like the bubonic plague, like the rats are everywhere and mice are everywhere, and that tumors and disease start breaking out on everyone's skin to the point where they finally come up with a decision where they're like, we can't do this anymore. We've got to get rid of this thing. So they actually fashioned five golden mice to, to describe and represent the cities that the ark had been to as a guilt offering to give back to Israel to hope that the disease would stop and the pestilence would stop. They fashioned five golden mice in hope that the tumors would stop and they replace, they return the Ark of the Covenant. It's kind of neat how they do it though. In chapter six, it talks about how they put the cart, uh, uh, they put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart. They put two cows attached to the Ark, but they don't put two like cows that pull an Ark. They put two milk cows that aren't used to pulling Arks and wouldn't have done that. They wouldn't have gone that way. But what happens as soon as they put the two milk cows on the cart, they put the Ark on the back and they just say, yeah. (laughs) And the thing goes back to Israel like that. Running straight, it says that, that these cows who've never pulled a cart before pull the cart all the way back to Beth Shemesh along one highway, not stopping along any direction that they go. That's verse 12, chapter 6. And then when the people receive it, after they've played hot potato for a while, uh, th- then it's returned back to f- Israel, there's a joyous occasion. It says, now that if Philistines have been defeated, disease and pestilence is everywhere in their place, the Lord has taken care of himself, and he's the one who's returned himself back to his people. They rejoice to see it in verse 13. It's a wonderful thing. But not only this, it says in verse 19, they mishandle it right off the bat. They don't treat the Ark of the Covenant with reverence and holiness. Rather, there are some men there who look into the cart and look upon the Ark 
and they are struck down. It says in verse 19, he struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh, the Israelites, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck down 70 men. The people mourned because the Lord had struck down the people with a great blow. So not only is God's weightiness and glory and righteousness and holiness striking down the Philistines, but here it's now striking those who dare to treat the Ark of the Covenant as, as something less and something just to be seen by everyone. And here in verse 20, when the men of Bethshemesh said this, get this, they say this phrase, who is able to stand before the Lord, a holy God? It's a, it's a striking moment. Who can stand before this holy, frightful, fearful, powerful God? Certainly we can. And they come and finally they gather Samuel. Finally, it might be a good time to ask what Samuel thinks of this. And so the first time you now hear about Samuel, the last time we heard about it was in chapter 3. Now finally they go to Samuel. Look at verse 3 of chapter 7. 3, 4, 5, here it says in verse 3, Samuel said to the house of Israel, if you returning to the Lord with all your heart, get this, put away your foreign gods and your Ashtaroths and your Dagons and your Baals from among you and do this. Look at this, verse 3, direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. There's, a, there's probably a, the key phrase if I could just kind of pull it off and hand it to you, okay? Direct your heart to the Lord. There's all this storyline leading up to this very point where he calls the nation of Israel to turn their heart from seeking themselves, making themselves into their kings, making themselves objects of worship, making themselves in charge and say, hey, turn your heart not to yourselves or to Baal or to Dagon for God's already taken care of them. Why don't you turn your heart back to the one who loves you most, who saved you, who has rescued you, who has redeemed you from, Israel, uh, from Egypt? and who is going to make you into a great nation. Repent and turn from your sin, and I love the phrase, direct your heart to God. Is that not a beautiful statement of what we do today? Repent, turn from our sins, fear, yes, the holiness of God, but direct our hearts to him, and he will receive us. Now get this, the ending gets even better. This is the cool part, this is the climax. We've been building to this point. We get to this point, what happens? Samuel gathers everybody, direct their hearts to the Lord. He gathers them in verse 6. They fast. They say, we have sinned. Verse 7, then the Philistines hear that everybody in Israel is gathering at Mizpah. Seems like a perfect time to lay the finishing blow upon them. So Philistines start attacking. The people start freaking out. This could be another situation. Hey, get the ark. Let's go into battle again. No, no, no. They said, we made that mistake before. And Samuel does something. He says in verse 8, And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he, notice he may save us, before it was an it, now it's actually Yahweh, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And I love Samuel's response. Look at this. Verse 9, Samuel said, he, he, he turns and he, he repents. In a sense, the whole people are turning around. And Samuel took something. What does he take? A nursing lamb. What a, what a picture of like the mightiness and the greatness and the power and the holiness. And, the, and then he takes this little innocent, pure and spotless lamb. And he takes it and he offers it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord and for Israel. And the Lord answered him. 
And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, verse 10, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But how does the Lord respond? Do you remember the way the Israelites responded in the first battle? They shouted, right? Bring the ark in front of us, our little good luck charm, and we're going to shout really loud. They're going to be scared. They're going to run, right? They give a mighty shout, it says. What do we see here? Verse 10, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound, something far heavier, weightier, and greater than anything the Israelites could muster. And that day against the Philistines, and it threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And all the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines. And verse 12 says, and Samuel took a stone, he set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called the name of that stone Ebenezer. And he said, till now the Lord has helped us. And what we find is that there is eventually peace in Israel for a good period of time. It's an extraordinary passage. The arc of the narrative brings us to this climactic point where they have a choice. Do they serve God? Do they direct their hearts and trust in him and him alone? Or do they seek their own ways? And as they do, they seek the Lord. The Lord responds with a mighty sound, a thunderous sound. It probably deafens the Philistines and they're scattered and scared and fearful. And the Lord wins a mighty victory. And Ebenezer says, we don't, we cannot forget this, people. He builds a stone and he sets up this massive stone pyramid and he says to this thing, this stone right here is a reminder for all of you. It is called Ebenezer. Ebenezer means a stone of help. Or till now the Lord has helped us. God is our help. He and he alone. And there was peace. Our Ebenezer today is the reminder for all of us that that God is our help. He is your help today. You can run to everything else that you've been trying to do in your own life, on your own, apart from him. Or you can turn to him. Repent from your sins. And make him your help. And he will help. You. 4.16 of Hebrews says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And it all because of the beautiful picture here that we see, it is just begging for us to point to Jesus. It's like a giant arrow. <laughs> it's like, look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to Jesus, right? We've been in the Old Testament, but so much of Samuel leads us to look to Jesus, He is the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. And it is that nursing Lamb that is placed that marks a difference in God's view of the people of God and He comes and rescues them. It is the slaying of the Passover Lamb, the applying it of the blood to the doorpost in Exodus 12. The picture of Christ's atoning work on the cross. Those whom he has died have been covered by his blood, right? The lamb here was also taken regularly into the altar to be offered on behalf of the sins of the people. And so Samuel brings this lamb before all of the nation and sacrifices it as a repentance. We see that in 1 Peter 1.18. In the New Testament, we're led to Jesus that knowing that we were ransomed from our futile ways, inherited from our forefathers, not not by perishable things such as silver or gold, but by what? What are we ransomed by? We're ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or without spot. 
that Ebenezer, that help is made possible because of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, his precious blood atoning for your sin so that you may come before a mighty and holy God and have a wonderful, life-giving, intimate relationship with God. Come before him. Make him your Ebenezer. As the song that we're going to close with here in a moment says, well-known song, and we sing it very often, classic hymn, Come Thou Fount. It says in that passage, here I raise my Ebenezer, my help. I raise my help here to remind me that God is my help and he is my savior. It is in him and him alone. Hither by thy help I have come and I hope that by your good pleasure safely to arise at at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, interposed now with his precious blood. Let's close in prayer. Father, we come before you today knowing your holiness, your power, and yet knowing your goodness and your graciousness, your mercy that you extend to us even in this moment. We know, Lord, that you are great and mighty, yet we know, God, that you are good. And we look to you today. We repent from our sins. We turn to you. We direct our hearts to you. And God, today, collectively as a church, we raise our Ebenezer. We, we recognize and we remember that you are our help in ages past, and you will be our help in ages to come. May we cling to you and hold to you as the rock that is higher than I. God, we glorify you. Thank you for these people. And we sing your praises. May you be the fount of every blessing in our life. May you be glorified and lifted high above all other things. May you be lifted high. In Jesus' name, amen.